But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who has a theory that is the nerve... Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? And you can schedule it so that the reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with pigeon pecking. Welcome back to Spit and Twitches, the Animal Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Broadbeck. Today on the podcast, we've got Suzanne McDonald from York University. Uh, Suzanne uh, is a professor of psychology there, and uh, she started out, uh, did her graduate work at University of Alberta, and then went on and did a postdoc, uh, I think at Don Wilkie's lab at the University of British Columbia, and that's where we met when she was a postdoc. I was a grad student. We met at a conference uh, in Halifax, uh, and we sort of knew each other, really, I guess through Rob Wilson, going back, uh, and one of Don's students, and we would uh, always meet each other you know, at, at conferences and stuff like that, and... Uh, she once drew on the back of my neck with a pen. I don't know why, and hopefully we're going to – the kind of hard-hitting journalism we're going to get at, uh, in, in this interview. Uh, I'm going to ask her point blank why she drew on the back of my neck in a paper session. Anyway, uh, Suzanne does fascinating stuff. Uh, basically, uh, she's interested in a few different things, just basically memory and cognition in animals generally. The psychological well-being of captive animals. Uh, she's worked at the Toronto Zoo as their behaviorist for like 25 years now. Uh, and also, she's looked at the uh, impact of human activity on wildlife. Uh, she's uh, active both uh, in the lab and in the field. Uh, she's done field work in Kenya and Costa Rica. Indeed, when I first uh, contacted her, uh, I guess it was back in, might have been October, I asked her, you know, would you like to be in the podcast? And she's like, yeah, sure, except the internet isn't very good where I am. Uh, and I thought, in Toronto? She said, no, I'm in Kenya. Uh, so uh, we postponed it until now, but it's just, it's going to be great to have Suzanne on and talk about all kinds of interesting things and finally get to the bottom of this. Why did she draw on the back of my neck? Because that, ladies and gentlemen of the animal cognition community, that is the issue. Again, as usual, I can turn anything into a discussion about me. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Suzanne McDonald. Hey, Suzanne, how's it going? It's great. How are you doing, Dave? I'm okay. You know, it's uh, pretty typical here. I, I, my tradition has become to ask people about the weather, but I think it's probably lousy in Toronto, too. It is super lousy. It is not as super lousy as it was, so I'm just going to go with lousy instead of super lousy. Okay. Uh, yeah, here it's like minus eight. It's not that bad. Uh, it was minus 26 or something the other morning. Uh, the joys of Northern Ontario. You can tell we're Canadian, hey, because we say minus eight. So not that bad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's Other like, people would be like, I'm sorry, minus something? Yeah. yeah. There's degrees that go below zero. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, it's, 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 it's not so bad. And I'm on sabbatical, which is the, the, so I don't really have to care. I just go outside, shovel the driveway, so Isabel can leave and go to work. Well, <laughs> so, even if you don't even do that. I mean, really, oh, well, sabbatical too. Some days I just look outside, and that I consider my <laughs> exercise. So <laughs> we've known each other for quite a while. I think we, did we meet at one of those at that Dalhousie conference? Is that right? In eighty nine? Absolutely no idea. I know it's been a very long time. Yeah, I think that's when it was. Because um, I think I met you through Rob Wilson. 
Oh, probably that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were a postdoc with Don Wilkie then, right? At UBC. Yeah. Yeah. But you started out. Well, what did you do at your undergrad? Because I, I don't actually know that. I did my undergrad at the University of Alberta, ah, proud institution at Edmonton. Indeed. Yes. And you also did your grad work there, right? I did. When I was an undergrad, I was actually in genetics and uh, No way. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. No, I did. I worked in a genetics lab, a molecular genetics lab. I was cool. sexing uh, whooping crane DNA. Wow. I, I, I thought there was a, uh, there'd be a joke I could make there, but there I don't think be. there is yeah, one. It's a tough joke. You have to work on it. But there, <laughs> there is a joke there somewhere. But yeah, that's what I did. And um, then I decided that... Although I do dearly love measuring things and, and having small test tubes, mm-hmm. it's probably why I bake to this day, <laughs> but um, I figured I had to get out instead of just dealing with the DNA, I had to deal with the actual animals. Right. So then you worked and you did your PhD with Doug Grant, is that right? I did, Doug yeah. Grant at the University of Alberta. Um, yeah. on, on, what, what, what kind of stuff were you guys doing? Um, so we did a lot of basic pigeon memory stuff and my PhD was on... Um, Basically, memory for sequences, so how pigeons remember the order or whether they can remember right. the order of things, which makes sense if you're a bird that flies, right? You have to, and you actually find your way home. Kind of important to remember the order of things. Right. It was a brutally punishing thing. I ran 33,000 trials <laughs> with eight birds to try to get them to remember um, two things in a row. So I think they probably do it much better in the wild than they do it wow. in the lab. I thought I was going to lose my mind. That's and... that's crazy. I mean, it, it's funny. I, I think back, of course, Doug was a Bill Roberts student, yes, right? Yes, And that, that's a very Bill Roberts approach, right? Uh, just make very small adjustments to things and do it over and over and, and over. very precisely. Yes, and I... And I I did it, and I now I reject that wholeheartedly. <laughs> but I 100% because Bill Roberts is my great grand, my grand supervisor, right? And um, I think he's a god because I think anybody and Doug as well, anybody who can do that mm-hmm. in that methodical way, yeah. it was kind of like working in a genetics lab, really. I guess now that I think about it, because sure. it was that methodical, you know, very small incremental progress, and you work towards the goal, and that is the way really good scientists work. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's funny. I think back, uh, I guess it was at, at CO3 about, oh, I don't know, uh, four years ago, just after Bill had retired, and he said to me, it's too bad that I'm retired. I'm finally doing some good work. Because <laughs> he's such a humble guy, right? And I, I know. I, he I, has I, yeah. more ideas before lunch than the rest of us have in our whole lives. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was a postdoc for, with him for three years, and I, I, I actually, I never had done anything like this in my life, but I grabbed him by the shoulders, and I said, do you know who you are? <laughs> He actually doesn't. That's why we love him so much. Oh yeah, that's right. That's that's who he is? That, 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 my my feeling has always been people that are really good. You know, they're always more full of imposter syndrome than anybody else. I, don't I know. think so, and he is extraordinary. And yeah, man, I bow down to him. He's so. I would say he's the father of comparative cognition in Canada. Really, he's yeah. Yeah, I, I think. Man. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. Um, and then you went on and you did a postdoc with Don Wilkie. I did. Uh, and. You started there. You were still doing pigeon stuff, basically, but you sort of ventured out a little bit and did something with monkeys. Is that correct? Yes, I went. I was um, working in the lab, and again, I was starting to realize that this lab stuff was, you know, really awesome for some kinds of people, but not so great for me. So, I went to the Stanley Park Zoo, which doesn't even exist anymore. Right. Um, and I and it was a horrifying zoo. <laughs> I mean, not that the people the people were really no nice, no no. But 
It was a horrifying zoo in that, well, it was open to the public, which again, the public is terrible, but, um, and so the monkeys were getting stuff thrown in their cages and they were eating like pills and they were all missing fingers. Oh my. It was terrible. So I went to the um, director of the zoo and I said, you know, your zoo is really terrible. (laughs) And I would like to help you uh, make some of these animals feel a little happier about their terrible captivity. Mm-hmm. And he, his name is Mike McIntosh, and he is another extraordinary person. And he said, you know, you're absolutely right. Why don't you come and do whatever you can? And I'll make you the night watchman and you can come to Stanley Park at night and I'll pay you $14 and 10 cents an hour. And you can um, chase away all the druggies who are trying to throw stuff in the monkeys. And I was like, sign me up. So wow. I did. I didn't know this. You, you had this sort of uh, fight and crime idea. <laughs> oh, it was fantastic! It was my totally. It was my superhero phase, and I would like get really angry, and people would scream, and they would all be high on whatever the hell they were high on, and I would call the mounted police, and they would come, and it was great, and and it was you know, and I would play with the kangaroos in the middle of the night, and awesome. it was just an extraordinary time. It was great, and then I would go to the lab the next day and just say nothing about it. <laughs> I know Don Wilkie would have had a heart attack. Yeah, I think he would have. <laughs> Mild-mannered Don probably would have kind of, you know, started to seethe. I, I, I... <laughs> I think so. I can't imagine what he would have done. If he, and if I look back now and, and saw that, I would go, what were you, what were you thinking? <laughs> yeah. If one, if one of your students came to you and said they were going to do that, what would you say? I would say, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> You'll be killed. And, and I would never. And, but, you know, when you're 25, you go, yeah, that seems like a good plan. Yeah, sounds legit. I think I'll yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. $14.10 an hour. Are you kidding? Yeah. I'd do anything for $14.10 an hour. <laughs> Even now. That's pretty good. So. Yeah, that's true. It's above minimum wage anyway. Yeah. Um, so you then got a faculty position at York where you've been since 1990, if I read your, if you I remember are. your bio. Yes. Um, and it's funny, actually, I remember when you became department chair, I think it was the same time that I did. And I think I emailed you and I said, how did we become adults? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Disturbing, wasn't it? Yeah. It's in charge of the money. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, and, yeah, it's, uh. It's amazing. That's all. Well, it tells you what the rest of the pool's like. So that's a pretty sad commentary. That's right. I, I have two former students that uh, are like former undergrad students of mine that are now department chairs in Canada. So it's that's even weirder. My, it, my, yeah, my department chair is Lori Bloomfield, who I taught as an undergrad. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh yeah. Wow. That's well. She'll be good at it. So that's... oh, she is. She's very good at it. Yes. Yes. She doesn't. Uh, not as many uh, outbursts as I used to do. Um, <laughs> Although the outbursts are super fun. Oh, they're fun, but yeah, it's uh, – anyway. Um, <laughs> so, so so you get to York, and you have this uh, zoo experience, I guess if you want to call it that. And so did you right away go over and talk to the people at the Metro Zoo? Or? Oh, I did before I even took the job because nice. I wasn't going to go if I couldn't do it because I realized that's what I wanted to do. So, yeah, the, I started at York July 1st, and July 2nd I became the volunteer behaviorist at the Toronto Zoo, and I've been there ever since. Yeah, you've been there for yeah, well, ever since, and so that's geez, that's a long, a long time. time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you were also, uh, of course, at the time, uh, eventually uh, often on the Discovery Channel in Canada, right? Yes, indeed. I had a show for about five years, a little segment on uh, the nightly Daily Planet show, and yeah. um, and I do, I still do doc like a one hour, one hour docs or whatever they got, mm-hmm. whenever they've got them. And, uh, for the BBC and for Nat Geo as well. Cause I think, you know, if we don't, well, first of all, who doesn't love animals sure. and they should be they're on TV all the time. So that's a great way to get science out there is to show people 
you know, animals doing cool things. And yeah. when they're not in a lab, then you can actually show them. That's the problem. So many of our colleagues do amazing things in labs, but it doesn't really photograph very well. <laughs> so, you know, it, but it, if you're working in a zoo or you're working in the field, then it's something that can actually get out there. And I love that when you hear, you know, 10-year-olds send you an email going, I saw this show and I want to do this and blah, blah, It's great. So I really like that. Yeah, it's funny. I, now and then, I, Bob Cook, I think, still has that list of people that do comparative cognition. Uh, and uh, now and then I, I get an email about once every three or four months, from, usually from a kid. I'm doing a project, a uh -huh. science project, and I want to find out if my dog's smart. Oh, cute. Yeah, and it's like, well, okay, let's – and I usually just – Give them a like try try matching to sample and I you know or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I also want I once I, this may have been because of you. Uh, somebody on one of those you asked for it things on the Discovery Channel asked what the smartest animal was and uh, uh, they called me and I said it could be the Clark's Nutcracker except I've never seen it build a civilization or drive a car. <laughs> And you know what? Chimps do drive, so I would have to go with chimps. Chimps drive, yeah, they yeah. Drive. Like, so I was at a zoo once, and one of the chimps um, actually escaped. And there were there was a little golf cart thing. You know how they use on the zoos? They have the little sure. golf carts that go around. And the chimp got in the golf cart and was working the pedals. There were just no keys in it. But if there were keys, that chimp would have driven away. And I, you know, I tip my hat to that chimp. It's funny. I, I remember reading a paper in JCP years ago about. Uh orangutans at, at a, a rehabilitation center of some sort in, in, in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And I, the person who did the paper, who I can't remember, which is a shame, came and uh, gave a talk when I was a postdoc. And uh, she was talking about how these animals would do things like they would steal your toothbrush and then brush their teeth in the morning. Yep. Uh, they'd steal. They, one of them stole her New York Yan Yankees cap. And, uh, yep, they love that. <laughs> and uh, they, I said, well, what happens when you when they steal your toothbrush. She said, well, first of all, you can't get it back and you really don't want it back. <laughs> and they also helped them paint. They helped paint one of the structures. They, people were painting one of the buildings. <laughs> the orangutans came up, picked up a brush and started painting. Oh, they love painting. And I have to say at the zoo, um, you know, if you give them a brush, they, they get mud and they paint the windows. And of course, the, the people who clean the windows aren't that pleased. But it's a riot to watch because they've seen humans do it. And of course, if you give them actual paint, they, they make pictures. I have some of those. And one of our orangs used to, um, when you'd give her paint to do finger painting because they like it, yeah. she um, asked, we'd always ask for a brush because she likes brush beige because she was, didn't like to get her hands dirty. And she <laughs> sat and she painted her fingernails. Oh, that's pretty cool. I know. I, you I don't want to anthropomorphize, but that's awesome. <laughs> I, I know. It was, it was just something I, I couldn't believe that she had done that, but she did. I watched it, and it was extraordinary. So, you know, Clark's Nutcrackers are good. Yes. But if you want one, an animal like humans, I sure. would say others. But, you know, not saying that humans are the best, but it is true. We have built civilization. Yeah, we, we've done some stuff. We've, a few things. Um, it's funny. Thinking about the, the orangs, I mean, one of the things that uh, you've done is looking at this whole idea of enrichment that that, that is sort of popular uh, out there, uh, the idea that give them music, give them TVs to watch, cigarettes. I, I put through that last part in. Um, you, know. you know that's not a lie, right? The cigarettes. Oh, I know. I've seen that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, we don't do it anymore, but there was one orang that was completely addicted to nicotine so, um, and was a fantastic smoker. She looked so sexy when she smoked, I have to say. <laughs> It was like Catherine Deneuve. It was awesome, just with like more hair. It was great. Yes, with a bit um, more hair. But yeah. I mean, so this is the notion has always been that we give them things that people like. Yeah, I think it's because 
we assume because they can do all these things like we do, you know, painting and stuff like that, sure. that they must be exactly like us. But and they their visual systems are the same, and yeah. their auditory senses are pretty similar, mm-hmm. and everything is, you know, they get pregnant and they have babies after nine months, and they're on the human birth control pill. Everything is the same, yes, except for. We don't know what it is they like. We just assume they like what we like. And so in zoos all over the world, people are giving, you know, gorillas get videos to watch. Sure. And, and orangutan- almost every species they play radios for them in the back. And so, yeah, the study we've done recently was looking at that and um, to see what kinds of music they like. So the, the idea was I want to, have always wanted to find out, okay, well, what kinds of music do orangutans like? They're listening to music all day. Maybe they don't like, like, pop music. Maybe they like something else. Sure. They, they really like, like, really dark, like, goth metal. Well, sure, death metal. Yeah. Possibility, absolutely. Or, you know, so we thought, okay, we'll try different genres of music. I hate that word. It makes you sound like you think you're French. But, you know, <laughs> different I can, types I can speak French. Of, um, of music. And um, then they can pick the one they like the best. Mm-hmm. So we went to iTunes, as everybody does, and found the top categories and found the top exemplars of each category. So we had kids' music and we had, you know, your standard rock and roll, sure. classical, and those kinds of things. And then we also included um, throat singing, which is a thing that um, is done in Nepal. I think it's Tuvan throat singing. And it okay. has a lot of similarities to orangutans. They make calls that, are kind of, that sound kind of like that. Okay. So we included that as kind of a, you know... A, ecologically valid category sure. and um and silence as a as a control and mm. so i was so excited because i had been thinking about this for a long time to see which ones they liked sure. and it turns out when we gave them the chance they just turned the music off <laughs> so it's like oh how disappointing is that they really don't like any of our choices so um then we had to do follow-up experiments to say well maybe they just didn't like our choices or whatever mm. but it turns out you know we did some converging we have some converging evidence that they really can't tell the difference between music and something that isn't music right um and they so playing music for them is probably pretty aversive and certainly the behaviors that we saw that they exhibited um suggest that they would much rather have nothing than music and they are to this day you know still got music in the back there right um and all around the world, people are playing music in facilities, assuming that it, you know, the music calms the savage beast. I know that's actually not the right quote, but that's yes. what people think. And um, it probably isn't the case. Chimpanzees yeah. seem to sort of not hate it, but I think not hating something is not really the same as <laughs> preferring something. Yeah, it's like giving me a jar of capers. I'll eat them. Yeah, if I have to, if <laughs> yeah. I'm really hungry. But. but it's funny because, I mean, I remember back when I was in Bill Roberts' lab and he had uh, a couple of squirrel monkeys, Jake and Elwood. Uh, oh, I know, Jake and Elwood. Sure. Uh, great. By the way, the idea that Bill Roberts named something after uh, characters in the Blues Brothers always made me realize there was a whole side of him I didn't know. Well, it's too adorable to bear, actually. It, it really is. It's kind of great. It's kind of great. Yeah. But I remember when CCAC, Canadian Council of Animal Care, came and did their you know uh, inspection thing, and they said, you know, you really have to... Uh, enrich the, their environments. So you should play a radio all the time and have them looking out, at, make sure their cages are looking outside towards the parking lot. Mm. <laughs> it's like, okay, I get the looking outside. Okay. Yeah. But the radio thing, I remember saying to Bill, is there a station we're supposed to play? <laughs> and, and he said, I don't know. I think I'll just put CBC on. And I, I said, sure. But do they have a reason why? And it really bugged me for, cause you know me, things really bug me. Yeah. And uh, it, this really 
pleases me in a way that, you know, I mean, people always anthropomorphize animals and the idea that, that they would like the same things we like. Now, some things, sure, they like food and water and air and sex like everybody. But, I mean, yeah. they don't But necess- you know what? Yeah. Let's ask them about that, too. Don't yeah. just assume that we know that they like all these these. We know they like the categories. We don't know what they like in those categories, even right. the sex category. We keep trying to give them mates that they don't like, and that doesn't work out very well either. Sure. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, we think we know better, and that is so, I don't know, it's like colonialism, really. <laughs> like, really, <laughs> I'm going to tell you what you should do, and here, there you go. And for the rest of your life, you get to do that, even though I never really asked you if you like it or not. It yes. drives me crazy. I have this sort of vision of a somebody going into India, a British guy, and telling you should wear proper trousers. <laughs> it's just, it just. And it, I hope that these kind of results lead people in things like zoos to think of animals as animals and not as people in animal suits. Um, and I don't mean the general public, though it's nice to educate the general public. I mean people that are running these things. Has there been any uh, uptake of this kind of, uh, has there been any effect of, of, of this work at all out well, there I in the zoo some, community? Or? Some folks who um, who work with animals are are happy about it and they're excited and they want to try it as well. And others are just like, yeah, no, you're, you got the wrong results. <laughs> so <laughs> usually when you find something that people don't like, and it's perfectly normal. I mean, we understand how humans sure. think that the biases we have, if they've sure. been doing something for a long time and you tell them that it was actually a bad thing, well, they're going to tell you that you're wrong, right? They're not going to say, oh my God, I can't believe it. They're going to say you're wrong. So that's okay. Um, you know, if it impacts just a few, that's all that matters. But certainly the idea that we should even just ask the question, I think, is important. I don't care what the individual zoos do as long as they ask the question about what their animals actually want to eat and when they want to eat and yeah. what they want to listen to and who they want to sit next to and when they want to be on the public in the public display. I sure. mean, that would make a huge difference if we're going to keep these animals in captivity. At least we should give them some choice behind it. No, that makes sense. I mean, it almost makes too much sense. <laughs> um, yeah, it never happened, uh, David. It's yeah. Really, it's a pipe dream. But, I mean, this is the idea of applying results to real-world problems that happen with, with animals. So here you have the idea of, you know, doing this stuff with, 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 with the orangs in, 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 in captivity. There's other stuff that you've been doing uh, with, with elephants in Africa, which is exceedingly cool. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. It's um, a long, obviously, a long-term project. I would imagine, yes. Oh, dear God. i got to go run my elephants. It's something (laughs) I've never said. Takes forever. So I'm working in a couple of places um, in northern Kenya, this place called Lewa, L-E-W-A, which Mm -hmm. is an extraordinary place. Um, Prince William is our our patron. He got engaged to Kate on Lewa, by the way. Oh, yes, I have all the dirt on William and Kate, but that will be another podcast. That's a whole, yeah, it's a whole other uh, Um, royalist (laughs) podcast I'm starting up, yeah. (laughs) Um, And last summer I was in uh, South Africa in another spot. And um, so uh, uh, elephants are, uh, I know for us they are like these magical, majestic creatures, which they are. But if you live in rural Africa, they actually are a pain in the butt because they come and they destroy your garden. So all your work you have for your whole family for your whole year gets destroyed in one night because elephants come through. Yeah. And um, I've seen it happen and it's not a pretty sight and you can see how frustrated people get. And so this idea of human wildlife or human elephant conflict is, is a real thing. And so what we've been involved with, it's a big group of us, obviously not just me, but um, is trying to figure out ways to mitigate the conflict. And on Lewa, we 
built a corridor. So we've um, got this land um, that will safely allow elephants to come up and down a mountain, which is their, their traditional migratory um, route. Instead of going across people's farms, they can actually use this corridor, which is built for them. But, you know, when you build a corridor, the elephants really don't know that it's for them. <laughs> so you, you can't just put up the sign, you know, now open, because they just don't read either. It's annoying. And so you have to figure out ways to get them to use it. So one of the things that I've been trying is um, using scent, because elephants, 40% of an elephant's brain is actually olfactory lobe. It, okay. They mostly are a big smelling machine. Right. Um, and they, it turns out, uh, really like vanilla. So I found that out in captivity and took it out to the wild, and it turns out they really like vanilla. Right. So I took Costco vanilla, because um, <laughs> it's the cheapest and the best that I could find, and I took a whole whack of it over there, and we use it and uh, attract them to this corridor, and now they're um, using it quite regularly, so we're still tracking them to nice. make sure that they do. Um, but the idea, you know, this comes right out of comparative cognition and certainly out of the animal learning tradition in mm -hmm. that, Typically in Africa, what they do is try to punish the elephant. So if they go to somebody's gate or whatever, they shock them or they give, there's bees there because they don't like bees and, or they're hot chili peppers or whatever. So they're punishing them, right? Yeah. But, okay, that works. But we also know that that causes frustration. And the last thing you want is a frustrated, angry elephant. So um, using positive reinforcement instead of sure. punishment is probably a better way to go. And so attracting them to where you want them to go as opposed to um, detracting them from going where you don't want them to go, I think is a better, um, more, it's a more of a welfare solution than, sure. um, you know, hurting all these elephants and making them angry and then they just take it out on you later. Right. So, which they they will because, you know, elephants never, never forget. forget. <laughs> <laughs> to get yeah. that in there. <laughs> so, so they're basically using like bee, bees and firecrackers and chili peppers and yeah. loud oh, noises, my. cowbells. It sounds yeah. like Sally Boysen's party at CO3. It does. Uh, Every year I think that, you know, wow, <laughs> the elephants would not be happy here because... Sally, it's far too loud. But um, <laughs> but if you attract them to the hot tub with the vanilla, they will go. There so you go. just like CO3, they're, they're <laughs> off. And vanilla is a strangely weird um, thing because it lasts for quite some time, especially in areas that get no rain. And um, it's quite effective. So I've put hmm. one capful of vanilla on a rock and attracted an elephant from over two kilometers away. Holy jumping. Yeah, and it came right to me. And as I was standing there with my liter of vanilla, I was thinking I've made a very bad career choice <laughs> because I'm standing here with a liter of vanilla yeah. and there's an elephant charging toward me. Very bad idea. Yeah. I did survive, but I didn't actually think I was going to. That yeah, that sounds a little bit disturbing in a way. I mean It was oh, it was more than disturbing. I was like I was I had a video camera and I was recording like if this is the last thing that's ever shown for me, please don't think I was that stupid. Like things <laughs> just I didn't know what else to say into the camera. Think, I've done other things, really. Yeah. I have a PhD, I've got a number of publications, I'm a full professor. I didn't think it through. <laughs> like that could be on my tombstone. I didn't think it through. <laughs> I love this, though, because it's the idea of using, I mean, positive reinforcement is going to work better, and it's easier. You can give it on a schedule. Punish, yeah. Punishment, you have to do it all the time, right yep. away, full yep. intensity. It can control behavior, but yep. it's, you know, it's the same thing. Uh, it's the same thing with kids. It's a lot easier to, to give them reinforcement for things that you like rather than give them uh, punishment for things you don't like because all they learn to do is, you know, uh, I don't know smoke weed when you're not around, uh, yeah, you know, exactly. or, or, or whatever. And lie about it, right? And yeah. 
I mean, I think obviously farmers are still going to come out and bang the pot lids at them to get the elephants to go away. But sure. in combination with it, you've got to give mm-hmm. them an option. You can't just say no and then not say, but you can come over here. You know, that's the idea. So it, that's what's going on in Kenya. In um, South Africa, I was there I was with a bunch of students and we were trying, I was still trying to um, collect some data on this sure. scent uh, attractant idea. And also food preference idea, because there's a lot of misconceptions about elephants. They get a really bad reputation of destroying vegetation, and mm-hmm. that's why landowners, certainly in South Africa, want them uh, to be killed. And, uh, you know, they have no data, which, sure. again, drives me crazy. Yeah. If it's really the elephants, then okay. But if it's, if it's giraffe, then why the hell are you killing the elephants? Yeah. They're an easy target, and, and it's also just so heartbreaking to see them you know, they, they'll they take out a bull elephant and it completely destroys the rest of the hierarchy and, and everything goes to hell for generations to come. So sure. there have to be better ways to, to manage this. Thing. Yeah, elephants are really cool animals. Uh, they, they, they are. Yeah, I, I would love to see one uh, up, up, up close and personal uh, at, at some point. I, they're just, they, they're so powerful and big, but they seem so nice. <laughs> well, they're nice until you do something they don't oh, like. Yeah, or, so. unless, or if you've got a whole lot of vanilla. Yeah, well, they're really nice then, but you know, maybe a little too familiar. But um, yeah. yeah, they you know elephants that have been treated badly don't forget that, and they sure. they will attack humans, and you will die. So a friend of mine had her spine broken, and you oh don't my. want that. So um, you know we do again. We think of them as these fabulous beasts, but you don't want them living in your house. You know they're not pets. They're not. They're not magical creatures they are really powerful amazing animals that will kill you if you piss them off yeah well yeah of course i mean uh, and uh, it's not even just the size of the damn thing even if they weren't trying to kill you they'd still be able to kill you oh they could and it, honestly the first time you you just stumble on one in the bush you think well now, now again i'm i'm gonna die i, I spent right. a lot of my time either being super bored because nothing's happening or uh, thinking well i'm gonna die now so you know, that's what field work is, I guess. But when you work with <laughs> elephants, it's, there's a lot of those moments of, oh, dear, mm, huh, I hope someone finds my body. Like, <laughs> maybe they won't. I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to Kenya again next month. We'll see. If I die, this could be my sort of... Um, well, yeah, this, this, would be, this, would become, this podcast would become a collector's item. Wouldn't it be cool? And you could, and you could say, oh, see, she, she knew about her own death. That's yeah. really awesome. <laughs> it wouldn't be cool. It would be horrible. Well, it would be horrible, but in an interesting way. There you are. Yeah. You'd have that going for you. Yeah. See, whereas, you know, you think of pests in, in, in Canada that, that get in our way, you, the first thing that comes to mind almost all over the country, even here where we have bears, um, is, is raccoons. Because you've got uh, – gee, we had some living in our back shed, and my wife thought it was cute. And I said, no, it's not cute. <laughs> I don't think it's cute at all. They are, <laughs> they are neat. I mean, and raccoons, another <clears throat> uh, another animal that it kind of – you know, it's a little thief. It's got a mask on, um, except that they, they can be kind of vicious as well, mm-hmm. you know, um, and they'll, you know, take down garbage cans and stuff like that. And you've, you've taken advantage of, of, of that thing to compare urban and rural raccoons, right? Yes, I have. And I've been working with raccoons again. It's a very long term thing. So the first project was to put some radio collars on these little devils in, in the city and find out where they actually go. And um, those data showed that uh, raccoons actually have really small home ranges, so they spend their entire lives in like three square blocks in the city of Toronto. Um, they don't cross major roads. If they do, they get squashed. So sure. They are selected for not to cross, cross major roads. <laughs> so you have a really high density of these weird little animals living 
um, their whole lives have to find their, all their resources, all their food, all their water, all their mates in these very small territories opposed, as opposed to the original raccoons, which have like 20 kilometers square oh, okay. home ranges. So very different ecologies, very different niches, really. Um, so the raccoons in the wild don't eat the same kinds of stuff that the ones in the city do. The city ones eat out of the garbage and they'll eat sure. anything they can find. So it makes sense with raccoons being in certainly in Toronto, which is thought of as the raccoon capital of the world for a hundred years, that's plenty of time for evolution to have occurred. Sure. And so I thought that it would be kind of interesting to compare um, two populations, so rural populations and uh, urban populations of raccoons on a couple of measures of problem solving. And of course I thought, well, this will be easy. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, how hard could it be there in the backyard? Um, so yeah, it wasn't so easy, but thanks to Net National Geographic, I had the money to buy 40 motion camera capture cameras and put nice. them out everywhere. And it took me two years instead of the three months I thought. And um, I have over 800 hours of video, which is again, oh dear God, yeah. of raccoons trying to, I could only look at their each individual's first attempt at these problems. So I had to sure, figure sure. out. So all the data, when I couldn't tell if it was the same one or not, I had to discard a lot of data. So I ended up with 22 urban raccoons and 22 rural raccoons that were I, unique individuals, each trying these tasks. And I thought, okay, let's compare them on these tasks. And the distributions were non-overlapping on the hard task. Huh. No rural raccoons figured out the task. It was unbelievable. So the city and, ones are sophisticated city dwellers then, yes, right? Yes, yeah. over 85% of them figured out this task, and zero of the rural animals figured it out. And I just went, well, that must be a mistake, but it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> and it was stunning. And it's not that the ones in the city are geniuses. It's just that the ones in the city, well, they might be. I mean, I think they're evil, but yes. um, they they were much more persistent. They tried lots more strategies. They... Um, you know, they, they stuck with it. And I think that was the key. And, and that makes sense. I mean, they have more time on their hands really. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, but I do think that it's suggestive that there are now cognitive differences between these two populations that we actually are building a smarter raccoon by having them live with us in their city and having, trying to outsmart us, try to get into our garbage as we try to outsmart them. And this evolutionary arms race is having an effect on their little brains. So this spring, I'm going to work with infant raccoons Nice. before they've had any chance to have any experiences, because obviously the experience component is the key that may be the difference between them, right? Yeah. Um, and of course, I think that'll be super easy, and I'll talk to them <laughs> in five years and go, oh God, that was just the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But you know. I was standing there with a video camera, and 15 baby raccoons came at me, and I thought to myself... I'm going to die. <laughs> I was mobbed. That would be a terrible tombstone. That's that's that much worse. The elephant one's got a kind of romanticism to it. The, it does. Yeah, I yeah. could see it in some sort of, yeah, out of Africa thing. But no, <laughs> baby raccoons mauling me to death, that would be terrible. So I'm, uh, that will not occur. Okay. I am here to tell you. Good. Yeah. I mean, th- so this... I, I just uh, I've always really liked the idea of, of of looking at species that weren't rats and pigeons, um, and not that I have anything against rats and pigeons, and I've worked with both, but uh, mm-hmm. the idea that there are other questions we can ask uh, that uh, we can't really ask. Well, we don't ask those same kind of questions about rat, <clears throat> excuse me, but rats and pigeons because they're things that were bred to live in labs or to become food. Actually, with the pigeons, mm-hmm. um, my pigeons in Newfoundland though, we were they were wild caught. We uh, 
Yeah, that's a different animal, really. It is. Yeah, it really. It was. It was kind of cool, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I moved out here, I, I let them go, which was uh-huh. very fun. Uh, they all flew up. I let them go at home. I took them from the lab, took them home, four of them, let them go. They all went and perched up on our clo- uh, on a on an electrical wire for about mm-hmm. thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. Looked at each other and all flew off in four different directions. It was the <laughs> coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. It was like, uh, okay, guys, uh, it's been good. I'll good talk luck. to you later. Yeah. Yeah, but see, there you go. You had put them all together thinking, oh, well, pigeons all get along. They don't. They, they all want their own thing. That's right. That's right. Um, I have one last thing I want to talk about, and that's I want to get to the bottom of why you drew in the back of my neck at BBCS in 1991. Well, your neck was there. Okay. Dave. So, you know, it's like the mountains. Why do you climb them? Because they're there. (laughs) Your neck was there. I saw the opportunity. Yes. It was unadorned. No, indeed. It was bored, frankly. I think it was a boring talk. Probably. And I had the pen. I had the opportunity. I had the motive. I did it, and I admit it. I freely admit it, and Good. I would do it again. Oh, I don't doubt that. The uh, the, the funny thing was, I, we didn't really know each other that well then. And I was but we sitting, did afterwards. Oh yeah, I was sitting beside beside Rob Wilson, and and, and I, I, I turned around. I went, "What the hell?" And then you had this look on your face, like and holding a pen, like ee. <laughs> and Rob said, "She drew on the back of your neck." I went, "What?" <laughs> it was just a, uh, one of my favorite. I, whenever I talk about your stuff in class, I tell that story. Really. That's a disturbing thing that I'm known for that. Sort no, of well, you're known for other vandalism. things too. Well, I, I, what I try to think think of is uh, I try to tell students about other people and funny stories about them. Uh, I try, and very rarely do I do I tell stories that involve uh, you know drinking and things like oh, that. Good. Okay, usually. Uh- <laughs> okay, usually. But I don't drink, so you have to use the body art one. Yeah, me. that's right. See, so so it goes a little bit differently. Yeah, well, you know, I'm pleased to be able to contribute to your lore of info <laughs> that you pass on to the next generation. It's I do fantastic. what I can. Um, if people want to uh, check out some of the stuff you're doing, uh, what's your website? Uh, SuzanneMcDonald.ca. Isn't That's that easy. clever? Yes. And it was that because I used to have a Mac website, and then mm-hmm. they got rid of them all. They did. And that was annoying. Yes. So now I have SuzanneMcDonald.ca, which makes it sound like I think I'm some sort of artist or something. But whatever, I have it, and that's what it is. I can remember it, so. That's right. I, I was going to ask what your Twitter handle was, but I see you've done two Twitter posts, so I don't think we'll even worry too much about that. No, I actually tweet. I, I don't. I think you're on the wrong one. Oh, then. maybe. Because I tweet quite a bit. I'm York Psych. Oh, that's you. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll have to follow that, so, at York Psych. Uh, if anybody out there is interested in following what I do, you can find me at dbroadbeck on Twitter. You can find other podcasts I do at broken-area.com, davebroadbeck.com, mmvh.ca, bestepisodeever.com, tangentialconvergence.com, and of course, here at Spittin' Twitches. Uh, I think that's .com, right? Yeah. Anyway, thanks so much, Suzanne. This has been really a lot of fun. Great pleasure. Hope to talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. See ya. But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? The main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward, and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot in the wall, and you can reinforce with food. But 
you don't reinforce every time, you're every, perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. the same genome and so they would try to we are a, a clone if you want and, and we try to help our um, gametes to go into the next generation in this case is a conflicting system and um, for that reason this is very interesting this is a parasite and this is um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby which doesn't look at all like the um, like the host and nevertheless they managed to use precise trickery to make them do what they want. 